You're listening to Work Human Radio. And here's your host, Mike Wood. Welcome back to Work Human Radio, pioneered by Global Force. I'm your host, Mike Wood. And as always, I am joined by Sarah Payne. So this is the second part of our interview with Adam Grant. And um, hopefully you heard the first part. If not, go back and listen to the first part. But um, what can we look forward to in the second part, Sarah? So I talked to Adam about his new book, which is called Option B, and he co-wrote it with Sheryl Sandberg. And it's all about building uh, resilience in yourself and also your workplace. And we talked a bit about gender equality, which Adam is really passionate about, and uh, getting feedback and how it can help develop ideas in the workplace and fuel better performance. Great. So uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy part two of our interview with Adam Grant, who, by the way, is a keynote speaker at this year's WorkHuman conference, which you can learn more about by visiting WorkHuman.com. And special tip for podcast people, if you put in the code podcast, you'll save 100 bucks off registration. So here's part two. So uh, we talk a lot about performance management, how it's changing. Um, you know, annual reviews can be out the window for some companies. Some companies are keeping them. Um, what role do you see continuous feedback, you know, from peers, from managers playing in improving performance, generating more original ideas? Well, feedback turns out to be critical for anybody who's trying to do anything original. Mm. I, I don't think it's surprising. And yeah. a lot of people think it's, it, you know, it's about trying to figure out like, all right, you know, what, what problems should I be working on? It's actually much more critical for figuring out if your ideas are any good. Uh, so one of, one of the most interesting pieces of data that, that I came across when writing originals is uh, from a former student of mine, Justin Berg, who was interested in, in how people predict the success of new ideas. And he studied circ, uh, excuse me, circus artists, like think Cirque du Soleil. Mm. and found that the worst judges of whether a new act was going to be a successful performance for an audience was the artist themselves. <laughs> so, you know, if you tried to judge your own act in a set of 10, on average, you ranked it two slots too high. And it's just so easy for people to fall in love with their own ideas. And I think that, you know, obviously feedback is, is where we end up getting other people to hold up a mirror and say, you know, these are the ones that are promising, these are the ones that are dead on arrival, this is such a horrible idea, you never should have had that thought in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, in Justin's data, that was clowns. Uh, clowns were universally hated by everyone. Uh, and, you know, not accurate. every performer yeah. knew that. But you know, I think that that's, that's where feedback becomes so valuable is in vetting ideas. Every original person has lots of ideas on the table and, and you really have to rely on other people, especially your creative peers, to mm-hmm. you know, help you gauge which ones have the most potential. So I'd like to switch gears a bit and uh, talk about gender equality, uh, something that, that you're passionate about. Can you just talk about you know, why it's still an important issue in the workplace and the world today? Yeah, I, I think you could actually make a case that it's more important today than ever before. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's, there's a moral case, right? It's, it's unjust and unfair that we continue to have equally qualified women passed over for promotions. Uh, in favor of, of men, you know, who kind of fit our stereotype of what mm-hmm. a great leader is supposed to be. And, you know, we, we've seen this in, in so many different domains, how the, the disparities can play out. So um, when, when Cheryl Sandberg and I first started talking about gender inequalities, uh, she asked me some questions that I, I couldn't answer about my own data. And I had a long flight back from the West Coast to the East Coast, and I, I reanalyzed a decade of, of my own my own data sets. And 
I was stunned to find that, you know, consistently men who engaged in lots of helping and giving behaviors got rewarded. And when women did the same behaviors, just as valuable, they were taken for granted. And a lot of this mm-hmm. is about stereotypes, right? When a, when a man helps, it's like, wow, I never would have expected that in a million years. I must now shower you with praise and rewards mm-hmm. for, you know, not just being ambitious and, and self-focused. Whereas when a woman helps, you know, we expect women to be communal and caring, and people are like, oh, yeah, you know, she wants to help. And similar results played out for, for voice, which was when, you know, this is really germane to originals, when, when men spoke up with ideas, they were patted on the back. When women spoke up, yeah, they were either judged as too assertive and, and a little bit aggressive, or they were barely heard. And, you know, obviously this is terrible for, for women, but it's, it's also bad for organizations. I mean, the business case for diversity is extraordinarily strong. We know that particularly in innovative contexts, when you, know, when you need to, to change rapidly and come up with new ideas and solutions to problems, um, we know that, that Fortune 1000 firms that place a huge, huge premium on innovation um, are actually more likely to do it if they have more women in their top management teams. Mm-hmm. Um, we know that the gender differences help people look at the world differently. When people are in diverse groups, they also prepare more because they know that it, you know, it might be a more challenging conversation to get everybody's ideas on the table. And that's also good for, for idea generation. So I think this is a long way of saying the evidence is overwhelming that mm-hmm. uh, gender diversity can help organizations become more successful. And that's another reason we ought to care about it. So your next book, Option B, which is coming out soon, is co-authored by Sheryl Sandberg, and it explores the idea of resilience. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, why some workplaces, some workplaces are more resilient than others, and, you know, if we can get better at, at facing adversity in the workplace? Yeah, Cheryl and I spent a lot of time studying organizational resilience and, and trying to figure out, okay, look, you know, option B is about what you do when, when option A is off the table. So, you know, you would have loved to never fail, or never make mistakes, or never face major competitive threats, or even, for that matter, an economic recession. But those things happen. What do you do? Mm. And one of the the key factors that a lot of evidence supports is is critical for building organizational resilience is is psychological safety. That sense that I I can take a risk, I can speak up, and I don't have to worry about getting punished. And that's especially important for mistakes and errors. There's some research that I love by Amy Edmondson, who studied hospitals. Mm. And at first, she found that the, the more psychological safety there was in a team, the more errors they, they seemed to make. Um, so, you know, it seemed like if you felt like your team was a, you know, a safe place to speak up and you could trust everyone and, you know, nobody would punish you if, you know, if you admitted a mistake, then you know, it seemed like maybe you weren't as vigilant and you didn't double check each other's work and, and that was really bad for patients. But then when she took a closer look at the data, all the error data were self-reported. And so you didn't know how many errors were being made. You just knew how many errors were being admitted. Uh, hmm. And then she she brought in a a colleague of ours, Andy Malinsky, to do an independent analysis. And it turned out that when you have a lot of psychological safety in a team, people report more errors, but they actually make fewer of them. Hmm. Because once you admit your mistakes, it creates an opportunity for everybody to learn from them. And that kind of open environment where people can say, look, you know, here's, here's a mistake that I made, and I want to share that with everybody so that you know, nobody else makes it either, and we can learn how to both correct it and prevent it moving forward. Hmm. 
so powerful. There's a, an example that I, I think illustrates this nicely from Etsy, uh, where they actually have a norm that engineers, when they make a mistake, send an email to their entire team or sometimes even the whole company, and <laughs> that's just put out there so that everybody can learn from it. And you want a culture where, where that's safe and, and not going to lead you to get fired or, or punished unless you make the same mistake 19 times, which is obviously a problem. <laughs> right. So I just wanted to ask you one question that I like to ask all of our work human speakers. Uh, what does a more human workplace mean to you? When I think of a more human workplace, I think about a, a place where people care about each other as individuals. They don't just see their colleagues and clients as means to an end. They actually value the relationships in and of themselves. Mm. And you know, I, I don't know that every workplace is one where you want to see your, your coworkers as family members. But this is one of the reasons in, in a lot of my work I've been so passionate about trying to change you know, cultures of, of taking into cultures of giving. Mm. Because when, when people go to work and feel like other people have their best interests at heart, um, you know, not only are they more motivated, but they also feel a greater sense of belonging. And mm. when you, you think about work as the place where most people spend the majority of their waking hours, um, I think it's a travesty if, if people have to check those values at the office door. So I think about a, a truly human workplace as one that really is marked by norms of generosity where people help each other without strings attached and really look mm -hmm. out for whatever they can do to make their colleagues and, and clients' lives a little bit better and easier. I love that definition. Well, I do too, but I'm a little biased. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Adam, for chatting with me. I, I really appreciate it. I think our readers will really enjoy the conversation. So that's part two of our interview with Adam Grant. Hopefully you enjoyed it. I'm sure you did. Um, but uh, just a reminder that Adam is speaking at Work Human in Phoenix. Um, it is May 30th through June 1st. And you can visit workhuman.com to get more information. As always, the full transcript of this interview is available on the Global Force blog, which Sarah Payne writes. Um, and that's at www.globalforce.com backslash GF blog. So next week, we're going to be talking to Jason Lauritsen, who is also a speaker at Work Human. But Sarah, you want to give us a sneak peek? Sure. Yeah, Jason's actually guest blogging on the Global Force blog. And he talks about a bit about social gravity and stay tuned. Great. So we'll see you next week for another episode of Work Human Radio.